0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pause once again this morning to remember the fact that You love us through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our brother Tim Townsend just reminded us, that because of Christ we are in union with You and with one another. And what joy and privilege and blessing it is to be together. And pray that this morning Your Son would be exalted among us in the preaching, reflection, an application of Your Word. I pray that Psalm 2 would be a blessing to our hearts as we're reminded of Your greatness, especially in times of great crises in our country. And yet we know that if we are in Christ, this is not our best life now. We pray that You would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. we Well, open your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is our scripture for this morning. I'm so excited about particular about our passage this morning as we look at this great psalm. And I want to read it for us, Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their courts from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the Word of God. Great psalm. Psalm 2 is a precious and powerful psalm, I know to many of us, and it's ministered to my heart many times, especially during these past few months. It's a powerful psalm. But it's also a royal psalm because it focuses on the the coronation of the king. And we quickly realize as we meditate on Psalm 2 that while David, the writer, is a type of king, even in his day and age he was a king, ultimately this is the coronation of the ultimate king of all kings. Because no human king qualifies or matches what is said about this particular king here in Psalm 2. Now that's theologically. Pastorally, Psalm 2 has been the source of comfort and great confidence over the centuries for God's people. It was a song to be sung like all of the Psalms by God's people during times of great national crises. It was a song to meditate on that would remind God's people that that God's plans would not ultimately be thwarted. And that the plans of the nations would fail. But God's plans would greatly prevail. It's a great psalm. And Psalm 2, I think, is a very appropriate psalm for us to consider today. Not just because of everything that's happened this year crises after crises, at least from a human perspective, but also in the light of the uncertainty of even upcoming elections. You would be lying to me if you raise your hand right now and told me that you hadn't even thought about what's coming in a couple of weeks or what is already happening and voting taking place. This is a very crucial portion of scripture for us to look at. And I want us to look at Psalm 2 this morning and be comforted and strengthened in our faith by looking at this psalm. For here, beloved, we see the absolute and supreme reign of the ultimate King. We have an opportunity to reflect upon His kingship this morning. And my prayer has been that for us as, as Christians, we might sort of adopt this psalm, if you haven't already as sort of your, your biblical framework through which you will navigate the current crises and what is to come. And obviously a lot of that is very uncertain what is to come. And as we look at this psalm together, I also want to challenge you personally this morning with the, with the following questions. What or in who are you trusting in during this time Of crises. What or in whom are you trusting in during this time of upcoming elections? Is your trust in a political party? Is your trust in a particular politician or political officials? Local, regional, national? Is your trust in political world leaders? And perhaps other countries? And how they perceive America? Is your trust in perhaps a political platform? Particular issues? Particular policies? That may be in place or not. When push comes to shove, I want to ask you this morning, where's your trust located at the present time? Oh, it's not that any of those things we shouldn't care about, or even casting uh, or refraining or casting our vote as citizens of this country shouldn't matter to us. I'm not suggesting that one bit, as you're going to see. But I'm concerned that many of us are living in a constant, perpetual state of fear during these days, of anxiety. Of worry, of what we call as stress, of despair, of hopelessness as we see what's happening in the world around us during this time. Or you may even just be sinfully angry. And you sort of justify your anger and call it zeal for God's house when in fact it's sinful anger and a lack of love for others that are sinners such as you were before Christ saved you. In fact, we are still sinners saved by grace. What is the state of your heart right now in times of crises and uncertainty, even as we foresee or or, uh, anticipate what is to happen in the elections that are coming up? What is the state of your heart? Is your perspective basically, essentially, you know, God's plans all depend on this that's going to happen here. Maybe imperceptibly even, without even articulating it this way, you are operating as if God is subject to the events that are about to transpire in our country. We can live that way, even without verbalizing it, articulating it with our mouths. We live that way. We are in an emotional state of, of just constant uncertainty. And instability because we think that God somehow is subject to what's about to happen or worse. And so, as we look at this psalm, I want us to be reminded that this is simply not the case. We have a God who is sovereign, and we have a God who has a plan, He has a king whom He's installed already. And all we're waiting for is the the final death blow of the king upon his enemies. And, beloved, we need to live in the light of that on mission here in this world, making disciples so that Christ would build his church that he promised the gates of Hades would never overpower, never overcome. Amen? So let's look at this psalm. We're going to see it in four scenes together. We see, first of all here, the world's protest. The world's protest. I want you to notice in verses 1 through 3, the world's protest. Right? That word protest already brings images to us this particular year. There have been some peaceful protests of individuals in our country. But for the most part, I mean, it has been corruption galore. Human depravity has been ever before us in the type of so-called protests in our country. So we understand Protests, but this is the ultimate protest here. I want you to see this in a somewhat abrupt manner. The, the psalmist begins with a rhetorical question here as he observes the actions of the world around him. And he asks, in verse 1, if you notice, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? With this twofold question, the psalmist David is not necessarily asking for information, but the question that he poses here as he observes the actions of the world is meant to express righteous indignation and amazement at the conspiracy that is taking place in the world around us and in his world at the time. There's a conspiracy And it's highlighted, if you notice, by those Hebrew words, uproar and devising, which together, put together, speak to to the plotting, the scheming, the conspiring of a rebellious world. They're descriptive words. But it's not just a civilian people. Notice, this rebellion... It's from the top down in verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. I mean, these are the leaders of the world who have dug in their heels, who have united themselves to make a definitive stand of rebellion. And who are they in rebellion against? Notice, this sinful protest is against the Lord, against Yahweh, the one true God, and against His anointed. Significance of that word "anointed" is important for us. It's the word from which we get, or we get our word "anointed" from this word, but also Messiah, Messiah. And the significance of the word "anointed" is that in the Old Testament, human kings were consecrated or set apart. They were anointed for the special service of God and for serving God's people in unique ways. That's the case with David, who is writing this. He was anointed as a human king, but he is a type, ultimately, of the the king that is to come, the eternal king that the psalm points to. And so in the case of this king, it is God Himself, notice, who has anointed or set apart this king for Himself. This king has been appointed by divine anointing, by divine consecration. This is God's king. This king wasn't voted by human people. This king wasn't elected by human officials or citizens of any particular country. This is God's king. Look at what they're saying about God and his king in verse 3. Let us tear their fetters apart. And cast away their courts from us. Here we see the the shamelessness and the audacity of the world. And it's shown in that they reject God's rule over them. And they reject God's appointed king. This is the sinful protest of a rebellious world. Who points their finger back at God. Back at her creator. And says, I don't want you to rule over me. That's what those words express in verse 3. The word fetters there refers to the shackles that were used on the feet of a prisoner. And the word cords there, better translated as yoke, was the yoke that you would put on an oxen that you owned in an agrarian culture. So the imagery here is very telling. Think about this. The psalmist is saying, as I observe the world, the attitude and the actions of the world, the world, including its rulers view God's rule over them as enslavement, as oppression, as tyrannical. They view God as a tyrant. They don't want His rule over them. And how this speaks to the present state of our world, doesn't it? This so speaks to my heart as I contemplate this psalm many a time about what we see in our country. We're living in a world that is protesting against God and a country that protests against God and His rule. Now, how does the world's rebellion show itself? Well, there are those who explicitly refer to themselves as atheists, even though there is no such a thing except liars who pretend that there is no God. So there are some who pretend to be atheists. Others who just flat out deny the existence of God. Who deny the truth of God's existence. Why? Because they want to be autonomous. They want to rule themselves. The world's rebellion is shown in these things. Yet there are others who create their own God with a liturgy. Not the God of the Bible revealed in the person and the work of Christ ultimately... They just create their own God who fits their moral values or no moral values at all. Just because somebody tells you in this day and age, I believe in God, don't be like, oh, you're such a Christian. Thank you, I'm glad that we're both believers. Well, how do you define God, ask them. And by the way, who do you believe Jesus to be? Is He God? Push them on it. Don't just assume that everybody who says, I believe in God, actually believes in the God of the Bible, Or embraces Christ as Lord and Savior. And so we see the mutiny and rebellion of the world in these things. But there are also people who say they believe in God, all the while denying what the Bible says about super important issues in the very heart of our Creator God. We see them among civilians. We see them amongst governing officials. I believe in God. All the while, I don't care about what He says in His Word about critical issues to the heart of God. So don't drink the Kool-Aid, alright? right? Just because somebody says they believe in God, push them on it. Just because somebody says that they believe in the God of the Bible, ask them, okay, you believe in the God of the Bible? Do you affirm the very things that are important to the heart of God as revealed in His Word and test those things? This is how the world's rebellion is shown. I believe in God all the while denying what the Bible says about super important issues in the heart of God, such as what? Such as, to just name a few examples, the value of human life as seen in the protection of human beings in the womb of a mother. R.C. Sproul said at one point, something along the lines of the most dangerous place for a baby in America is now the womb of their own mother. Great statement. That's how the world shows its rebellion against God. All the while saying, I believe in God. And you know what? Frankly, I am floored. That even in Christian circles, one of the common things that I hear these days, even during election time, is, you know what? We cannot be just one-issue Christians. One-issue Christians. Just be about pro-life and not care about all the issues. Yes, preach it. Granted. But that almost sounds like there are even people who are now drinking the Kool-Aid that the issue of being pro-life is somehow just like any other issue, and it isn't just like any other issue, beloved. It is not. I ask you, just in 2017, is it just another issue for you that 132,000 babies or more, by conservative stats, 132 babies were murdered through abortion. Is that just one other issue? I think not. That is explicit elimination of lives right there. Explicit elimination of lives. Remember also the value of human life? Some of you who just said amen... I want to ask you this, okay? Do you believe in the value of human life also seen in the rejection of all forms of hatred toward others, seen in the prejudice and partiality of people because of their ethnicity, their social bracket, their background, etc.? Do you also believe in the sanctity of human life there? Yes? Christians? All evil is evil, right? That's a sanctity of human life issue as well. Believers who are unified in Christ and with one another reject both as a sanctity of human life issue. And we stand for righteousness and for truth in both of those issues. Amen? Preach it, Pastor Kempis or not? Beloved, I'm preaching to my own heart first and foremost. We cannot pick and choose what lives are precious to us and what lives aren't. Okay? All humans are, made, are image bearers made in the image of God. and So we must reject both of these because we want to foster and promote the righteousness of God on earth. That His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Both of these are fostering Righteousness and justice. The justice of God. How, what other issues? It's shown in people, in our society, this rebellion, in rejecting God's beautiful design of maleness and femaleness as the only two genders that God created. And nobody gets an opportunity to choose their gender. God gives it to you. It is a manifestation and a fruit of your human depravity when you reject the maleness that God has given you. Femaleness, if you are a woman. It is rebellion against God. So these are critical issues. There are many others. These are just three issues And how we see when the rubber meets the road, how we see the rebellion of the world, the world's sinful protest against God and what God stands for and things that are important to the heart of God. So it's not just a denial of the God of the Bible, brothers and sisters, that is rebellion, but also the denial of what God says in His Word about these and many other issues in these upcoming elections. And while you and I should certainly be filled with righteous indignation, not sinful anger, but righteous indignation over the sin and the wickedness in our country, you and I have to understand that ultimately the world is committing mutiny and is rebellious against who? God. It's against the Lord and against His anointed. So don't take it personal like it's against you. Unless you're truly zealous for the holiness of God and for the glory of your God. That's a whole different thing. The world is rebelling against God. Against the one who created them. The one who created the whole universe, who made all creatures, especially people. This is rebellion against God, who sustains every single person, who provides for people, who people live in his world, walk on his earth, drink his water, eat his food. And what do people do? They rebel against the Lord. We benefit from his gifts and we do not love the giver with a capital G, who is God, our creator. This is our world. This is our world. Doesn't acknowledge God, doesn't give thanks to God, doesn't submit to God, doesn't love God, doesn't give God glory. We want to worship self. We want self on the throne, not this God. This is happening before our very eyes, brothers and sisters. The world's sinful protest is ultimately against God. We must be reminded of that. Now watch this. The world may be wreaking havoc, conspiring, scheming, calling good evil and evil good. But what's the father's posture, secondly? What's the father's posture in verses four through six through to this rebellion? Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. This is good stuff, isn't it? As the world does its sinful thing, God is not running around, pacing back and forth, anxious and stressed and worried. Oh no, I'm really scared. I've lost control. My plan didn't work. It failed. Woe is me, says God. Is that what he's doing? And according to verse 4 and many other passages, pity the fool who thinks that or who lives that way. That the Christian God of the Bible is some wimpy punk figure that we call God. He is mighty and sovereign. And we see this in this text. Look at what He's doing. He's sitting on His throne where? In the heavens. In the heavens. Please note that in contrast to the the limited power of the rulers of the world, back in verse 2, whose domain is over the earth, God's rule in contrast to that little throne of earth is the heavenly throne. He sits in the heavens. And the heavens there are not just pointing to a location, but to the highest place of authority. A, A place where the world and its rulers don't have any dominion or jurisdiction over. Where the world has no say. They cannot touch this in heaven. That's where God rules and reigns. In the heavens. Listen to Isaiah 66 and verse 1. God says, Heaven is My throne, and the earth is my footstool. The earth is the place where I rest my feet. Doesn't sound like a wimpy God to me, does it? Psalm 115 and verse 2. Why should the nation say, where is their God? The psalmist responds, our God is in the heavens. And he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. The fact that He sits on heaven's throne gives Him supreme power and jurisdiction over the whole universe, including His creatures. That's the portrait of a great God, of a big God theology. He's great. Greater than the rulers of the world. There is no higher throne, brothers and sisters, in the heavenly throne. And this is why, as God sees the striving of the world against him, verse verse 4 tells us that he laughs. That he scoffs at these rebels who point their finger back at him explicitly or implicitly by what they don't affirm about him or that is important to him. This is not hysterical laughter. Like sinful taunting where he's downplaying their rebellion. This is this is laughter of derision, of ridicule, of mockery. It's silly to God in light of his infinite power that the world thinks so highly of herself. That's what this is. The world isn't that great. Someone has written RC Sproul, in fact. When God laughs, it's not funny. God is not laughing with you. He is laughing at you. There is a severe aspect, he writes, to the smile of God upon rebels. Wow. You see, people who are rebels in our world think they're mocking God, but actually God is mocking them. People think they have the upper hand on God, but actually God has the upper hand on them. People think they have their own plans and their own purposes, even political um, uh, leaders. But God's purposes will not be thwarted. He rules from heaven above. And no matter what political party goes into power in a couple of weeks, God's plans and purposes, brothers and sisters, will stand and not be thwarted. He reigns from heaven above. You see, God is storing up judgment for those who continue to rebel and not seek to be made right. That's where we're at right now. He's patient, working through His church on earth, believers who are on mission to proclaim hope in the Lord, the person and the work of Jesus who can save you from your sins. He's working through His people to call a people for Himself, our great God is. He's being patient. But He's a consuming fire. His wrath will soon be kindled. There is judgment coming upon those who continue to reject God's rule. And notice verse 5. Speaks of this judgment. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. Here God speaks. Notice those words. Underline those words. Anger and fury. And terrifying. Those are hot words, if you will. Anger, fury have to do with heat, with the red hot reality of God's indignation, righteous indignation of His just anger and wrath against the world's rebellion and against God's reign. Who are against God's reign? Strong words. Anger, fury, His wrath. What is God's wrath? You ever ask yourself that? What is God's wrath and how is it different than human anger and human wrath? Well, so oftentimes for us, anger and, and when we get upset or frustrated at others, when push comes to shove, with very few exceptions, we get sinfully angry, don't we? It's because of something somebody didn't do for us. Or a wrong that somebody did against us. Thus, we get angry, and oftentimes that is not righteous anger, that is sinful anger. But God's wrath is completely the opposite. What is God's wrath? It's His natural and necessary response to sin flowing from His utter purity and perfect holiness. Because God is holy. He must punish all sin. Otherwise, he's not perfect and he's not holy. For God not to deal with all and every single sin is to deny himself and who he is. He will cease to be holy, which is impossible. So far from indifference, notice in verse 5 and 6, far from indifference toward the rebellion of the world, God expresses His righteous indignation against it. He cannot and doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He cannot do it. To do it would be to deny His holy character. And so God's posture toward the rebellion of the world is one of resolve. One of... Peaceful tranquility, right? Because He's absolutely sovereign over His universe. He's not worried or concerned. You see, as human beings, we have a high view of ourselves. The problem is not that we don't love ourselves enough or that we don't have enough of a high view of ourselves. It's that we have too high of a view of ourselves. And if as Christians in Christ, we could struggle with that, Imagine people who are outside of Christ. People think too highly of themselves and don 't have the right and accurate picture of a big God, the God of the bible that 's the problem. Everything else flows from that: a wrong view of God and an inaccurate view of God. But oh, God is great and bigger than our than we think right Listen to Isaiah chapter forty and verse fifteen which really puts me in my place. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before God. They are regarded by God as less than nothing and meaningless. Boy, that puts things into perspective, doesn't it? The whole earth is like a speck of dust. Go to the beach sometime this week and pick up a speck of dust. That passage says that's what the world is like in comparison to the greatness of who God is. Like a drop in a bucket is what we are in comparison to the greatness of who He is. And notice verse 6. What's the greatest act of judgment against the world? Verse 6. But as for me, God says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. How will God deal with his enemies and end all rebellion against him? He has done so already by appointing his own king. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the king. Please note, who has appointed him? God has done it. You know, as U.S. citizens, we have been and will be casting our votes in order to elect officials. No one elects this king. No one on the human level votes for this king. This is God's appointed king. God has put Jesus on the throne in the place of supreme prominence. Jesus is Lord. And one day, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is who? Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God's King. And why is He Lord and King? It's because He came to die and pay for sins. But death could not hold him down. On the third day, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. No human being, no ruler, no king can do that. No governor, no president can do that. Only Jesus can do that. Therefore, he is the unrivaled Lord, king over everything. This is God's king. He is the one that we worship. This is why Peter says in Acts 2.36... Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says to the rebellious crowds, you guys need to get your act together. This Jesus that you crucified, that you put on the cross, He's risen from the dead. And God, the God of the universe, has set Him forward as the unrivaled Lord and King of the universe. Worship Him. Bow to Him. Now think about this. If you haven't already, while well, as Christians we don't approach this season, beloved, of elections carelessly or carefree, please know that there is nothing that can happen here on earth that can thwart the plans and the promises of Almighty God. Nothing can thwart His plans. Proverbs 19.21 Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Psalm 33 verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Nations rise, nations fall. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Kings rise, kings fall. Rulers rise, rulers fall. Nobody can thwart the plans of God. He is sovereign. He is in absolute control over big things and the very small details of his universe. His plans will be established. That's why Job says in Job 42, verse 2, Job cries out in the midst of his suffering. He says, I know that you can do all things, God, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, says Job. He's the unstoppable God, He's sovereign. And you know what? For those who put their trust in Jesus and who have been reconciled to God, He is our Father. And so we don't need as Christians, as God's children, brothers and sisters, to, ad- to adopt a- an earthly perspective of what's taking place. We need to adopt our Heavenly Father's posture in all these things. We need not live in a state of fear, of despair, of worry and anxiety. Or if throwing up our hands in the air helplessly saying, what's the use? There's nothing God can do about this. You have a little God problem if that's your perspective. If that's the way that you're living. Hear me. Parties, politicians, and yes, even political platforms are not the basis or the source of our safety or security. They never have been and they never will be. Ever, our peaceful tranquility is based upon the great reality that we have a God whose plans cannot be undone, modified or changed, no matter who's in office at whatever level of government. Nothing will thwart God's plans or purposes. Does this mean that we don't vote? That we don't get involved in a wise and responsible manner. That we don't vote in a way that brings glory to God, taking into account His glory and the good of others. Of course not. Of course not. We're called to make a stand for righteousness. We're called to promote righteousness on earth as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, yes, who are salt and light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So not putting our trust in the systems of our world doesn't mean that we live passively, disengaged from what's happening in our country, but it does mean that we keep the big picture in mind, brothers and sisters, that as Christians, we are pilgrims and sojourners passing through this world. I don't know about you, but that gives me great hope. That gives me great comfort, great encouragement, so that I don't despair because it is hard and it is challenging to see everything taking place in our country, especially this year. Let me remind you that you are a sojourner and a pilgrim in this world, if you're in Christ. One day, your U.S. citizenship will expire. (sighs) What? God will call you out of this world? in His timing, and your U.S. citizenship will expire. Your visa for living on earth will soon expire when God calls you to Himself. But the one thing that the Christian can hold on to that is incorruptible and undefiled and will not fade away is the hope that we have in Christ as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Amen? What comfort, what hope that should bring to us. So let's adopt our father's posture in all that we see, one of zeal for his glory and of peaceful tranquility because we know that he's in control no matter what takes place. So God has established a plan from long ago to appoint his king. Now, what's this king like? What's this king like? We've seen the world's protest, the father's posture. Let's look at the king's person in verses 7 through 9. Who is this king? Answer: He's God's son. This is evident in verse seven where the king speaks. "I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He, the Lord, said to me, "You are my son. Today I have begotten you." Notice that here the son quotes the Father, who identifies his appointed king as "My son, my son." Who is this king furthermore? He is God's son. He is the inheritor of everything. Look at verse 8. God says to his son the king, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. I love this. Son, those people, those nations who are rebelling against us, who are committing mutiny against our rulership, they're all yours. I'm giving them to you. You will inherit all of this. Again, why does Christ have this place or position of supreme prominence? Because He came and He is the Lamb of God who came and died on the cross to pay for sins and rose from the dead on the third day, conquering sin and death. Because Christ is Redeemer, He paved the way for being ruler, the exalted ruler and king above all. Notice verse 9. Who is this king? Furthermore, he's the final judge. Look at verse 9. God says to His Son, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Who is He going to break? Well, from the context, the rebel nations, the rebel people, the rebel rulers who don't submit to His lordship. I mean, this is terrifying imagery, isn't it? Terrifying imagery. One of judgment. Both of these actions speak of how the king will defeat his enemies definitively, thoroughly, and beyond remedy. As the king, he will break them with a rod of iron. He will take his scepter as king and smash his enemies. He will crush his enemies those who have rejected Him as Savior of their sins, those who have not bowed to Him and sought His forgiveness and to be reconciled to God through His sacrifice, He will shatter them someday and smash them in judgment. Then as Creator, as the potter of the clay, He will shatter them like earthenware. I mean, this is definitive, thorough, beyond remedy kind of judgment here. For those who reject continually the sacrifice of Christ, this is what's going to happen someday. And as believers, when we read these types of passages, do you yearn and pray and plead with people that they would come to know Jesus? Or are you like, yeah, give it to them, Lord. I cannot wait for that political leader to face this, baby. I cannot wait for those people out doing what they're doing to face their judge. We should have compassion. It should all the more encourage us and motivate us as we read passages like these of the judgment of God to want to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus to bear upon people's lives. I pray that that's what it would do for our church, brothers and sisters. What a terrifying picture. But this is Christ, our King. Now what are the implica- some of the implications of this? of Jesus being our King. Well, I want to remind us that as Christians, our loyalty and our allegiance is first and foremost to Christ. And the way that this plays out even during this difficult political season is in our commitment, if Jesus is King, then we need to be committed to thinking like Christ and doing what Christ wants above all. Amen? I mean, isn't that the Christian life? Want to glorify Christ above all? And so Jesus' kingship is applicable to each of us, no matter where you fall on the political spectrum. So please hear me. On the one hand, we shouldn't elevate what we might call patriotism above Christ. Patriotism doesn't equal Christianity. Patriotism doesn't equal Christianity, hear me, in such a way that your patriotism causes you to live in denial or not give credence to the fact that our beloved nation hasn't always done everything right. Now that is heresy to some of you sitting here watching me right now. So please keep listening, okay? Don't turn off the volume. Okay, that's it. Yet some of us don't speak in a measured, calculated way when we talk about what's wrong in our country. You see, as Christians, we know from the Bible... And we should speak this way, that because we live in a broken world, then we know that not everything in our world nor in our country has always been done for the glory of God as revealed in His Word. Because we live in a broken, fallen world, that should be a given, shouldn't it? That's what our theological grid tells us. It's okay to be honest about that then. Don't let your patriotism trump your Christian biblical worldview. And so as Christians, we shouldn't downplay or dismiss the wrongs done in our country because, hey, we're patriots. We're patriots. And please hear me. I say this as a U.S. citizen of this country who loves My country. I love the USA. I still remember the day when God in his wonderful providence and goodness allowed me to be a citizen of this country having come from Mexico. Some thirty seven years ago. I remember my wife who was born and raised here, all of my kids born and born and are being raised here, were there at that wonderful that wonderful day where I was sworn in as a US citizen. I'll never forget it. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. I love this country. I'm not for destructive protests. I'm not for reparations. I'm not for the rioting and looting that we've seen. I'm not for the verbal and physical abuse we've seen the last few months in our country towards people and people's livelihood. I'm not for defunding the police. But hear me again. I'm not against these things because I'm a patriot. I'm against these things because I don't believe that according to God's word, those things glorify God. That's why. Because I'm a child of God. You see, sometimes we can make our patriotism the issue... And almost the exclusive support for our arguments that we make. The decisions that we make. But if you're a Christian, your argument should not be based solely on your rights and your freedoms. Or even because of the Constitution. It's not in my rights I trust. It's in God I trust through His Word. Our Lord Jesus was the perfect example of one, didn't He, who set aside the independent use of His divine attributes and privileges, left His Father's throne above, came to earth, condescended, laid aside His freedoms and rights. Why? To serve us and go to the cross and die and pay for our sins. Now some of you may ask, so do these not matter? Rights, freedoms, yes, even the Constitution, to which I answer, to a certain extent they do as believers. Love for country, our freedom and rights as citizens, our Constitution as U.S. citizens are not all irrelevant or non-factors to consider as we navigate these waters for the believer. But, beloved, what I'm saying is this. Don't worship your patriotism by elevating it above Christ and His Word to the point where you're not willing to call all evil as evil on all parts of the political spectrum. Regardless of your political leanings, make sure to filter all issues through the grid of Scripture, the Gospel, the kingship of Christ, not first and foremost country. For there is ultimately no Christian political party. No Christian political party. Now this cuts both ways. This cuts both ways. If Christ is king and we are to be loyal to him according to his word, then make sure, Christian, that you don't chuck all morality out the window because of your allegiance to a political party or political platform. It cuts both ways, doesn't it? For example, again, I hear so many, even Christians, passively, almost implying by the way that they live that issues like the sanctity of human life, God's design for marriage and family... God's creation of male and female are really just uh, three other issues. And they're not. These are critical times to affirm those things if Christ is King. We are to pray and to seek God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that would include protecting human life, God's design of marriage and family as He intended it to be, so that the family infrastructure is spiraling downward in our country and families are falling apart all over the place because we define family differently, because we define marriage differently. This is a time, brothers and sisters, to affirm these things from the Word of God. We are to stand for and promote righteousness as salt and light in this world. And so let me say this. These are policies and agendas right now. There are policies and agendas right now that whether we're honest enough to admit it or not, almost exclusively are identified with the downplaying or outright dismissal of one or other of these great priorities in Scripture. Sanctity of human life. God's design of marriage and family god's creation of male and female there are platforms agendas political agendas directly and explicitly countering those things these are unique times where we're called to discern the signs of the times aren't we and so i wonder how many of us are actually seeing that that there's spiritual warfare at work and Certain platforms are no longer pretending to support those things. They're explicitly saying that they are against those things that are revealed clearly in the Word of God. These are unique times where ideologies and agendas run explicitly counter to God and His Word and what we as Christians are to be all about and champion. And so what I'm saying is this, in the light of our loyalty to Christ and His Word supremely, make sure that regardless of your political leanings, you run all things through the grid of Christ and His precious Word, the Bible, the revealed Word of God. That's what I'm saying. And of course, we understand that no no matter what happens, Politically, even in our country, in the near future, ultimately, the only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? The only hope is the gospel. So we need to remain focused on the gospel. And I want you to notice that this is where the psalmist, in essence, ends in verses 10 through 12. Notice fourth, the evangelist's persuasion. The evangelist's persuasion. And I say the evangelist because what we see is that the psalmist, David, as he contemplates the rebellion of the world and God's coming judgment, he sort of takes the position here of an evangelist and he pleads and he persuades the world. What does he tell them to do? To act wisely. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, in view of God's coming rule through his appointed king, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. You know what? That's just another way of him saying, wise up, kings. In the light of the the judgment that is to come, wise up, take warning, receive instruction. In other words, listen up, O judges of the earth. He's pleading with them. And what does he call them to in verse 11? Worship the Lord, worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. It says, in light of what is coming, of God's righteous rule through the Lord Jesus Christ, become genuine, heartfelt worshipers of God. That word worship there means to serve the Lord with reverence, with affection at with appropriate adoration. You rebel sinners, quit serving yourselves and serve Yahweh, the one true God. Instead of viewing His kingship as oppressive, As bondage. They are to rejoice with trembling. Which has the idea of humbling oneself with joy. This is joyful worship. This is joyful submission to the king. And verse 12 tells us, or he exhorts them, do homage to the son. You know what that literally means? Kiss the son. Kiss the son. They are to worship God's appointed king So in ancient times, those conquered would kiss the hand or the feet of the victorious king or conquerors as a gesture of submission, of loyalty, and of allegiance. The psalmist is saying, you rebels, bow in affection and adoration and loyalty to King Jesus. Bow to Him. Adore Him. Love Him. Pledge allegiance to Christ. And this is not a suggestion This is not optional. This is not, hey, no worries if you don't choose to do this, if you don't choose to worship and submit to Jesus. This is not optional. Look at verse 12. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. Why? For His wrath may soon be kindled. This is serious stuff. God is a consuming fire so you can choose to surrender willingly, joyfully, seeing yourself as a rebel sinner who needs to be made right with God. And the answer is through faith in Jesus Christ. Or you will one day in the future submit to force by force. God will break the knees of those who have rejected his son as savior of their sins. And he will submit them to his own lordship. Worship the eternal Son of God, King Jesus. This is a message for those of you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Maybe you're listening online or whatever, and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. This psalm is a warning to those who are living rebel lives, worshiping self, living for themselves. You weren't created to live for yourself, to worship self. You were created by God, the one true God of the Bible, that you might glorify Him and enjoy Him in this life and forevermore. You can carry out that purpose through faith in Jesus Christ today. Christians, I close as I opened today. Let me ask you, in whom or in what is your trust located this morning? Even during times of great uncertainty coming up. Is, it, is your trust in politicians, policies, political platforms, or is it truly in God you trust? Do you truly trust God? Make no mistake about it. We're in the midst of spiritual warfare, but we have a conquering king who has already been victorious and the victory has been secured through the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen? Amen. Beloved, all we're waiting for is the final death blow when Christ returns. All of this should should drive us to live victoriously, not live in despair, but hopeful lives. And all of this should drive you and I all the more to want to be on mission to carry out Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, to make disciples of all peoples. I pray that as we contemplate this song, even this week, this is what it would drive you to. To want all the more to see added lives to the kingdom of Christ. A kingdom that is going to be beyond this present world. Amen? Let me pray for us as the worship team comes up. Father God, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the reminder this morning that Christ is King. And Lord, as we see so many difficulties in our country right now, and even we face uncertain times of crises coming up, Lord, we don't mock at the future. But Lord, we rejoice in the fact that we have a hope that is beyond this present world. Help us to live in the light of that. And help us to have compassion for a lost world, Lord. Help us to have compassion for our city of Burbank, of L.A., our state of California, our country, our world. Help us to be mission-focused Christians. Help us to speak the truth in love concerning the only hope who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Even now as we sing, Lord, may these be words that we just, just don't go through the motions, but that we would truly mean them from the heart we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible, copyright by the Lochman Foundation.